It can be really hard for kids, especially teenagers, who may ex be experiencing some anger issues to understand what's going on and to develop some coping skills. Pastone Mental Health has Rotary House, where children who are experiencing some um, problems with anger can live in, for 12 weeks and learn the skills that they need. Christine Harvey is clinical manager of Rotary House. Hi, Christine. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I've been really curious about um, over the last couple of years over how kids have been coping with COVID as we, as we go through the stages. And um, there's been so much disruption in their life and so much disruption in their, in their social uh, development. And I wondered how some children who might be a little bit prone to um, troubles dealing with anger have coped through COVID. So do you have a sense whether there's um, a, a growing problem because of the instability? Yeah, I would say there is an increase um, as there is an increase with most mental health um, concerns. But when we think about it specifically with anger, anger is often um, a way that children, youth, whoever it might be, show what they're feeling because they don't have a more appropriate way to express themselves. So they haven't found other coping skills to express like, hey, this is how I'm feeling or I'm feeling really confused about this or I need to go for a run. Um, so naturally, as stresses increase in our environment, um, we do see an increase in anger, anger out outbursts, um, the way kind of people are responding. And it's the same true because um, COVID and all of these things are also impacting routines. And we know that when kiddos, youth, whomever it might be, don't have routine and structure, they are more likely to um, feel a sense of uncertainty, a sense of unsafety. And then that is when we also see more of those behaviors. Um, and then we also have to think about the complicated or the complex fact that um, kids, teenagers, whoever, again, it might be, um, they're spending more time with their families than they ever have had to. Um, and if we think specifically like the 12 and up, that is when you're really developmentally starting to focus on your friendships and um, you kind of care more about your social circle than you do about your family. And now you're essentially forced to spend more time with your family. School is sometimes in, sometimes out. So sometimes your parents, your family members, your caregivers aren't even getting a break from those anger outbursts or those conflicts or opportunities, you know, to really reset. And so there's never that like back to the equilibrium of like what's normal where everybody's just always at this heightened sense of stress. Yeah, I guess kids would be, especially when you get into teenagers, as you said, um, the you know, not being able to see their friends. At that age, there would be so many um, things you would talk to your friends about that you would never talk to your parents about. So if right. you were having, say, an issue with, with uh, growing frustration, it's not the kind of thing where you would say, hey, mom, hey, dad, or, you know, whether it's a single parent, whatever, I'm really feeling angry and frustrated. Uh, I know that teenagers, they're not as likely to, you know, talk about that. Yeah, they're not. And I think the other piece, too, is that teenagers are starting to grow and develop, but they don't necessarily have the full cognitive skills to also understand why they're feeling angry or why they're feeling a certain way. So they're trapped 
well, especially in the beginning of COVID, they're trapped at home. They don't understand why they're feeling angry. They're acting out in these ways. And then they don't have their natural supports, their natural ways to deal with what's going on. Um, you know, even if it is just like going and chatting with a friend or going to the mall or going to a movie or whatever it might be, um, or just hanging out, they don't have that. So it's that increased anger, but they don't always have the insight to know what that anger is about to even communicate it if they wanted to, right? And so it is this complex state of something's going on. I don't feel good about it. And the only way I can express it is by um, by showing you externally. I mean, some kids do it internally, but anger is all about our externalizers, the kids who show it on the outside. <laughs> so how do parents and teachers, I guess, what would the level of anger be um, what, we, what you would consider sort of normal anger for a child um, as they're growing up. And when does it step into the the child needs some sort of therapy and counseling and then gets to the point where lived-in treatment like Rotary House becomes necessary? And how do parents and teachers recognize that, that progression? Right. And I think so the first thing we have to consider is obviously like just the general temperament of the child. If the child does have a um, temperament that is harder to soothe, um, that is, may be just normal anger, normal frustration. And then sometimes that's when we talk about like goodness of fit. Is it that the parent doesn't necessarily understand how to respond to that temperament or to that um yeah, to that like natural tendency to be a little bit more sassy or spicy, we might say. Like I was a sassy kid. I was a spicy kid. I always reflect back and think, oh, my parents didn't have the skills. They didn't know how to handle me right. Um, so often my big feelings would get bigger and bigger and bigger because my family would respond by grounding me, yelling at me, whatever it might be. And so even at that level, if we notice that there's not a good complement together, you could engage in therapy just to figure out like, hey, how do I work better with my with my child? Um, and that's that's just a normal, natural thing. There's no handbook for parents. Right. We don't know who our children are going to be. And so that's a preventative measure. I'm noticing my child looks like this or acts like this. I'm noticing I don't really know how to handle it or I'm increasing it. So who can I who can I connect with? Who can give me skills and strategies? Um, I think when we talk about like as it gets bigger or bolder or more intense, um, you know, if the child is unable to stay present most of the day or throughout parts of the day, at school, if they're destroying rooms, if it's impairing their ability to learn academically, um, if at home, you know, it's constant strife and fighting and there's no sense of calm. Um, and these kids are constantly being, feeling like they're bad, but their parents are also constantly feeling like their kid is bad or difficult or too challenging. That's when we say enter services, you know, ideally we hit it at the preventative stage so it doesn't blow up, but sometimes we don't catch those cues. Um, sometimes, you know, hormones can play a huge role in that as well. There's a, a bunch of different reasons why anger develops. And so um, I think it's accessing service as soon as you notice there's a change in typical behavior and it's impacting the family life, it's impacting the school life. That is the best time um, to come to rotary specific or lived in treatment. Um, that is kind of a 
how we kind of look at that flow is basically you've tried other services because our goal as therapists is to do the least intrusive therapy and move towards the most intensive. And um, lived-in services is one of the most intensive services Pathstone offers. And so generally what we want to see is that the family has tried those other strategies that could be offered. So uh, maybe individual therapy, family therapy. Um, Pathstone has a ton of different groups that teach uh, that support parents um, in learning how to manage difficult children that also support the children and how to respond to their parents differently. So generally, we want to see that the least intrusive supports have been tried first, and that really they're not being effective. And mostly it's because they're the family really needs a break from each other to have some time to practice the skills away from each other. Um, because that is essentially what Rotary is based on, is this idea that when we live in a constant state of chaos, if I were to say to you, and I think even COVID was a good example for most people, they were in a state of survival. So when we're saying, you know, oh, take some deep breaths or go do this or go do that, they they can't implement it in that moment because they are in survival mode. And so it's the same with our families. When they're in that survival mode, they may have the best of intentions to make change, but then they go home and the conflict is just so high and so increased that there isn't space to practice. There isn't space to try. And we know most of the work happens outside of the office. And so that's where we say maybe Rotary is the best place because we give you that time away um, to both to work individually on skills, uh, to work together on skills. And then they also have home practice. So then they go home um, once or twice or three times a week um, and they get to practice in a really safe setting because lived in treatment services is still here and available to them. So if there is a disruption, if there is some chaos, they can always come back to us um, and then we'll try again. And then they also have access to the therapist, the counselors to try and help it be more successful. Um, so that's how I would kind of say, ideally we want to hit it at the preventative stage. Does that always happen? No. So then that's how we would kind of hit the um, intensive version. Now, some kids um, run away or they leave yes. home. I mean, run away is kind of a, an old way of looking at it. They leave home. Um, maybe the violence level has gotten really high. They may be taking drugs, uh, but um, they find it that, that they just can't live at home at all. And uh, and some I read some parents are, yeah, you know what? You can't stay here. Yes. So how do you deal with that? Because at that point, are you not then expecting the child to say, oh, hey, I need help and then reach out to Pathstone? So typically referrals to um, to lived in treatment services do come from internally. So typically they're already connected to a therapist at Pathstone or they've engaged in services and that's where our referrals are coming from. Um, we do get referrals outside of Pathstone agency, but typically they are from uh, like hospitals, like a child is in 3G. Um, so that would be a, the mental health uh, facility for youth. Um, so I guess in a sense, yes, if they were running away and they didn't feel safe, we would be hoping that they would be connecting, whether it's our crisis or our walk-in to say like things are not good. And then they could make the appropriate connections, the crisis workers or the walk-in workers, because they have such great knowledge and everything 
available. Um, but he, the big piece too is also that for Rotary services to be appropriate, our goal and our objective is that parenting piece. And so both youth and parent have to be in agreement that they're going to commit. It, it is a 12-week program that they're going to commit to the work. And the work includes, um, so in a week, the youth would have an individual therapy. They would attend um, group dialectical behavior therapy. So that's with the other youth in the home. They have, um, there's a parenting group that the parents are expected to attend and there's family therapy. And so we really do need both parties, uh, whoever the caregiver is, and the youth to be on board with, in like involving themselves and engaging in those services. And so I guess the tricky part is, is if they have run away, um, are, they may not be an appropriate fit for us at that point, because we do need to know that they're going to feel comfortable to return home on those home visits. So then maybe it is doing some individual work first or what like family therapy first to like make sure we have that set up first. Um, so yeah, I think it is a bit of a process, but you know, um, it's not to say that never has a 12 year old, a 13 year old, a 14 year old reached out to crisis and they've connected with me or whoever the clinical manager is at the time to say like, hey, we have a youth and we think it's important they get some support. So that's sort of an overview of what happens at, at Rotary House. What does a typical day look like? Okay, yeah. So, and it, I guess, it, the thing to note is that it is different depending on each youth, but generally what happens is when they are here um, in the morning, we support them with their morning routine, um, get them off to school. If they are doing online school or some type of modified school, schooling, they do it like say it's um, online learning. They do it here at the house. There is a house parent available who's kind of doing like the cleaning and cooking the meals. And then there's a staff available to support. Um, most of the youth return after school. So we're looking at like a, because of their age, two to three thirty, four o'clock. Once they return, it is quite structured um, because really the idea is that some of these youth that are coming have not had experience with routine with structure with expectations and that is often because of their the behaviors you can receive when you have expectations on them um so because of that um, like in the evening, they come home after, or they come back to Rotary after school. They have a little bit of downtime. There's some scheduled homework time, uh, dinner time. Then we do some form of group. So um, we might do like a, a dialectical behavior therapy group. Uh, we might do something like a general like check-in group with a creative arts activity that is therapeutic based. Um, we might review different strategies they do. We might have a physical activity plan. So meditation, yoga, going for a run. Um, but essentially, yes, the things that are scheduled in the evening are things that reinforce their coping strategies that we're trying to teach them, the general strategies we're trying to teach them. Um, and so that's kind of what the evening looks like. And then at nine o'clock, they start to get ready to go to bed. Um, and then 
medications and then they do go to bed. So it is fairly structured. They do get like what's called community time, which does give them some access to like leave the building if they wanted to. Uh, we're very local in Niagara Falls, so they could go to like Wendy's or Tim Hortons or wherever they wanted to go to get that break. But it is a very structured set 30 minutes of time that they have. Um, so yeah, I think that is the biggest thing is that the day, the night is very structured. Weekends are very structured. There is downtime, but we are also trying to show them how how much structure routine really does help them flourish. And it's also super trauma-informed because they know what to expect. They know what's going on in their day. They know that they can talk to the therapist or um, they're often assigned a primary worker. So they can talk to their primary worker or whoever else is really available. And they also have time to connect together because although they're all here for different reasons, they all have a shared goal of hopefully returning home with less strife, less conflict. I don't imagine that everybody gets along. I mean, you can't take children who have any kind of um, struggles and mental yeah. health struggles, uh, put them in a room, especially if you're dealing with anger issues, and have everybody get along. So yes. what happens in, in those, or, and I mean, I guess how, how often does that happen? Right, and I think there is this piece to acknowledge, Rotary, or lived-in services, doesn't just take youth who are angry, we also do take internalizers. Um, so as a piece to try and make sure, we, we operate in cohorts. So it's a 12-week program, um, a cohort of the same youth that are here that entire cohort, unless they opt to um, discharge or withdraw on their own. Um, so part of trying to eliminate too much conflict in this house um, in this house at Rotary is we do have a panel that we initially sit with and we present to the youth and we go over like do we think there'd be a good fit do we think there's going to be um, a connection do we think like what are the risks you know if this youth is a huge externalizer and is kicking and throwing and punching things and this other youth that we want to accept is um, has a lot of trauma and loud noises and things like that trigger them, we might decide, okay, these two are not appropriate to be in the same cohort together. Um, so there is a panel that meets to discuss that. With that said, you're right. I mean, if you think about anybody that lives together for 12 weeks, um, there's going to be some natural conflict. And we are dealing with some youth who um, have much bigger reactions than some of us. Um, so if that does happen, I think we really do try and encourage like that in vivo counseling or that in vivo opportunities to practice skills and strategies, you know, to say like, look at this is what we are noticing or this is what we are seeing. And this is when it's not a huge conflict, right? Like when you're still able to intervene, like, you know, what are some skills we could practice here? How could you use an I statement or how could you advocate for yourself in a meaningful way? Um, when it's full blown, like if there was, um, you know, hitting aggression, um, we would try and separate as much as we could. Our youth are trained. I'm not our youth. Our staff are trained um, to deal with youth who are at risk of hurting themselves or others. And so, you know, there is that risk or that potential that the, the youth is going to be restrained if there is imminent danger to the self, themselves or others. Um, ultimately, we try to avoid doing that because it does have some impacts on the youth, on the staff, 
on that relationship. So we do try and be aware and try and catch those things as they're starting to happen so we can intervene at an appropriate time and say like okay what is a skill you need to practice here what is something that you may have you learned with the therapist that might be helpful um but yeah that's never to say that something's never escalated full-blown um but that is what we try to avoid naturally well and as you said i mean there's some natural human nature in there of um living in in close quarters i mean i can get angry with people who who i know remotely i may not yell and scream at them but yeah. i need to go home <laughs> and think ah. um so i know we talked about mental health um and right. what kinds of anxiety would be a natural to me that would would uh, cause a child or anybody to have to act out because often anxiety is something people don't know how to deal with and when it gets bad and and or trips into a panic attack it's very hard to bring yes. that under control um but what else is it that a child might be grappling with that would lead them to that kind of the need for lived-in treatment? Sure. Uh, so we do have anxiety. So as you had mentioned, you know, like serious self-harm, um, suicidal ideation, uh, conflict at home is always like a primary. Um, the idea is that there is that risk of breakdown at home is often what results it. But again, as you said, what is causing that breakdown at home? Yeah, anxiety, anger, um, we see diagnoses or um, hints at like borderline personality, cluster B traits, ODD, conduct disorder. Um, it's really wide and I think there's a lot there. Um, but I also think as staff, we try not as much to look at the diagnosis because that that really doesn't impact us. What we try and look at is the behaviors. And so it is typically those behaviors of like um, refusing to uh, cooperate in daily activities at home, um, big anger outbursts, screaming, like screaming, yelling, threatening. Um, drugs is a common one, um, inappropriate sexual behavior, um, risky behavior in general, um, a feeling of not being able to keep the youth safe. Um, with that said, there is an expectation that when they enter uh, lived in treatment services, they are stabilized. So they are not actively suicidal. Um, because we do have a bunch of youth here. And so we want to make sure they're stabilized, but it is something that they're managing or dealing. So um, the diagnoses are widespread, ADHD is in there as well often, um, but we more focus on like, what is the behavior and what is the goal of the family and the youth? And um, an interesting piece about that is that we meet with um, the families and the youth once a month to make sure we're still trying to meet their goals and their expectations. So is it the yelling? Is it the screaming? Is it the punching? holes in the walls? Is it the hiding in our room, no motivation, the risk of self-harm, having to go to the hospital multiple times a month because there's worries about safety? Um, that's what we really try to focus on here. What would you consider success? And do you have a, an idea of uh, children who leave Rotary House and are able to move forward with anger management and, right. um, and, and cope? Right. So I think success and how we see it here is 
it's not the absence of the issue because the reality is in most situations related to mental health, anxiety, anger, whatever it is, if that is how you have been since birth, you are most likely always gonna be more inclined to get angry quicker or to respond potentially with a bigger reaction. Um, it's the same with anxiety. You're always likely to probably think a little bit more like worst case scenario. So we don't look for the absence of the behavior, but that when it is experienced, both the youth and the family feel that they can manage it.